Thank you, Ollie. Uh, let me add my welcome to that of his, and thank you, Sharon, for reading the passage so clearly. It is so good to see everyone back for a new year. Uh, fresh trims, fresh Christmas clothes on, um, and it's good to be back together and look at this passage. I wonder if you noticed uh, the strange way in which Jesus first encounters this man uh, at the pool. He says to him, do you want to get well? And I've been thinking about how would you have responded if Jesus had said that to you and you were in this man's condition? Do I want to get well? What sort of question is that? I've been here for 38 long, hard years. Who asks that sort of question? But I'm not actually sure that the man ever asks who it is who asks him this question. He's stuck, yes, physically. He has no power in his legs, but he's also stuck in a, in a cycle of helplessness, of hopelessness, which Jesus miraculously breaks. But that's not really the point that John wants us to get from this encounter that he records. What John wants us to see is, what is it that Jesus is demonstrating about himself this morning here in this encounter? What claims is he making? Who is he? That's the real question. That's the real important question. And in fact, it's actually an issue of life and death. I wonder if you noticed in verse number 18, as Sharon read that to us, that because of Jesus' claims, the authorities tried all the more to kill him. But yet in the face of their murderous rage, he claims that those who take his word seriously and follow him, trust in him, will have eternal life. So the question still is asked of us this morning, do we want to get well? Do you want to get well? But the outcome really depends on who is this man, Jesus, who asks the question. Who is he? And that's what we want to consider from this encounter this morning. We pick up here in chapter 5, Jesus um, on a journey again. So last week he was on the journey from the south up to the north of Israel, and now he's coming from the north, his home in the north, back down south to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, one of the national festivals in Israel. And through the hustle and bustle, Jesus seeks out a specific individual who we learn has been disabled. He's an invalid and has been in that condition for 38 years. And he's situated at a pool called Bethesda, located near the temple complex. Incidentally, for any of you history nerds, uh, archaeological digs in the area uh, back in the 1960s have revealed this pool. Uh, it had two sections, an upper and a lower section, and the five porches that John describes have been uncovered, confirming the historical data points that John, the eyewitness, includes in his record. But anyway, many disabled people gathered around that pool each day under these porches, taking refuge, because according to reports, when the water was stirred in this pool, the first sick person to get in there would be healed. Perhaps it's like the water at a modern-day sort of uh, holy site or spiritual healing shrine like Lourdes or the Ganges River, where people have reported healing experiences. Anyway, this disabled man, we're not, we're not 100% sure how he ended up in this condition, but 38 years is a long time. He was part of the furniture, we would say. I'm not sure what else he had tried or where else he had gone or what else could he do. No support, no welfare, state, no friends or family seemingly to 
provide any care for him. He's stuck. He's waiting. He's hoping that this pool could maybe save him. He certainly wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus searched for him, and Jesus found him. And as he approaches him, Jesus, I assume he kneels down beside him, and he asks him, do you want to get well? Do I want to get well? What did the man think of that? Well, based on his response to Jesus, I wonder if his thinking went something a little bit like this. Well, sure, I'd rather be well than be in this condition, but what does it matter anyways? I've been here for 38 years. I doubt I'll be here for another 38, but I'm stuck here. It is what it is. This is me. I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. There's others here, and they have the power of their legs. They can get in. Or they have help. They can get lifted in, but I have nothing. No chance. This is where I'm at. It seems he was sort of lost in self-pity. It's easy, isn't it, in the midst of life's difficulties to, to get lost in the struggle, to wallow, so much so that we become defined by them that the question needs to be asked, do you want to be well? Do you really want change? Do you want to be restored? I imagine his response is a little bit like when you try to talk to someone when they're engrossed in the TV. They're sort of listening to you, but they're kind of looking past you, you know? Are you listening to what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, but just let me see this. Oh, almost scored. Perhaps that's a bit of an exaggeration, but he's so obsessed by the pool. It seems like Jesus is trying to get in his gauge, but he can't see him. He says, sir, I have no one to help me get into the pool. When the water is stirred, he says, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He completely misses the question that Jesus asks him. He completely misses the point, hopeless, helpless, and he's fixated with this pool. We don't know Jesus' expression, but I like to imagine he has a wry smile as he turns to the pool, and he turns back to the man, ignoring his response. He says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And instantly, without input from anything else, the man's dead legs, atrophied muscles are brought back to life. After 38 years of decay, he has the strength to get up and walk. I wonder what the sensation was like for him. His legs hadn't had power for so long. They were frail, decrepit. How amazing as he felt the strength of life pulsate through his calves, through his thighs, as he pushes himself up for the first time in almost four decades. What a miracle of new life, of restoration. Simply from the word of Jesus. But why this man? Why here? Why has Jesus chosen this man at this place and healed him in this way? In the next chapter, in chapter number six, Jesus insists in using a boy's five loaves and two fishes when it comes to the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And later, next week, we're going to look at chapter nine, when Jesus does use the pool of Siloam, another pool in Jerusalem, to heal the blind man. So why is John making such a big deal about this pool? 
if Jesus doesn't even use it? What is Jesus demonstrating about himself in this encounter? Well, as we go on to the next slide, I imagine John, he, as he records this incident, he, he sort of notes with a grin in verse number nine, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. This is where the real fireworks begin. Now, in order to understand the dynamic at play here, we have to take a quick time out and just think about what Sabbath meant in the biblical story. What was Sabbath? Well, of course, the original or the origin of the principle of Sabbath, one day per week to rest each and every week, goes back to the very first page of the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Back in the biblical account of creation, uh, God creates the physical universe in six days, but then the seventh day stands, stands apart. It stands separate outside the structure of the six days. And on that day, twice over, Genesis tells us, God rested from all of his work of creation. Now, of course, God didn't rest because he was tired. That's absurd. That's illogical. It's impossible. It wasn't that he had a, a rough week and he needed to recharge the batteries for the next week. No, not at all. After the six days of creation, God had a Sabbath rest. That time was, was time for God to enjoy the paradise that he had created with, with humankind, with the man and woman that he had created, in the garden that he had created. That was the goal. That was the purpose. That was the whole point of creation, was to enter into this Sabbath rest and enjoy paradise. And in fact, the whole biblical story from Genesis to Revelation, you could sum up by how that paradise rest, that Sabbath, was destroyed and lost, and how God is working to restore it again. So God's purpose in the principle of Sabbath, one day a week, every week, for us to rest from daily work, was to remember that true rest is found in a right relationship with God, and that God is at work to restore the paradise that was lost. And in fact, many people learn by experience that it's woven into the very fabric of our bodies. It's healthy as creatures to stop and to remember once a week that our work, our career, our family, none of our achievements are the end goal of human life. But we look to the creator for paradise restored with him. So it's an elementary rule for us as the dependent creatures to have a Sabbath rest. But of course, God, by definition, doesn't take a day off. For this entire universe to exist, God must be working all the time, upholding the laws of physics and of life. The next breath that you take is because God is at work. The sun continues to burn. The, the earth continues to turn on its axis. We rotate around the sun because God is at work 24-7, upholding the universe continually. And not only is he upholding creation, but he is also continually at work to restore this broken, sinful, morally corrupt world to the paradise of a renewed creation. So that's the principle of Sabbath. Time back on. Back to our narrative. 
Now, the Sabbath was, of course, taken very seriously by the Jewish nation, as it was part of the Old Testament law. And so when they see this man who's now been healed, and he's, and he's walking, carrying his mat, they stop him. Oi, 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 this is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, that rule was actually an additional interpretation that the rabbis had added to the Old Testament law. But anyway, the, the man strangely still doesn't know Jesus' name, but he blurts out, well, the, the man who healed me told me, pick up my bed and walk. And then when Jesus reveals himself to the man, he rather strangely goes and reports Jesus to the authorities. And then Jesus becomes their focus, their persecution for breaking the Sabbath rules. And you can feel the tempers are starting to rise and it's starting to get testy. But Jesus' response to their persecution, Jesus' defense against their condemnation is stunning. He doesn't take issue with their faulty application of the Sabbath. He'll do that elsewhere. And he doesn't critique them for the fact that they've lost the whole point that we've just thought about of what Sabbath was about. He'll do that another time. What Jesus says in his defense is, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. What Jesus is essentially saying to them is your disagreement with me doing this on the Sabbath is because you don't understand who I am. You've got me in the wrong category. Humans need a day of rest. God does not. God, my Father, is working on the Sabbath, and so I, his Son, work on the Sabbath. Your primary mistake here is not your misunderstanding of the Sabbath. Your primary mistake here is your misunderstanding of me. And that category that you preserve for the one and only God, that now needs to include me, Jesus says. It's one of the most incredible claims that Jesus makes. I find it hard to illustrate, but I think it's a bit like when it comes to bedtime enforcement in our house. Of course, when it comes to 7 p.m. bedtime, none of the kids want to go to sleep. We often get, well, will you get to stay up late? Or the, the puppy dog eyes, you know, mommy, I just want to stay up with you. Or, or maybe sometimes it's a little bit uh, more defiant. How come you get to stay up and have fun? Now, it's a silly example, but of course the answer is clear, isn't it? Well, my love, mummies and daddies don't need as much sleep as little kids. So the rules don't apply to us. But your rule is bedtime is seven, so get to bed. Now, it's an imperfect illustration, but I wonder if it helps you get the point. Jesus is saying, the Sabbath rules for you don't apply to me. You're dependent creatures. You need a Sabbath rest. I am fully divine. My father is working, and even so, I am working. And notice in making his point, he calls God my father. He states that he has a unique and exclusive personal relationship with God. He is the son of God. And so in the same way that God is at work to redeem creation and restore paradise, so too the son of God is at work doing the same. 
Now, this, of course, creates a massive stir. Purposefully, during one of the biggest festivals of the year, the place is hiving with Jewish pilgrims, and Jesus rolls this grenade out by doing this miracle in this place on the Sabbath and making this claim. And it unsurprisingly incenses the Jewish authorities more as they understand the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. How can this man claim equality with God, they cry. And so they want to kill him for blasphemy. But did they look at the evidence? Did they ever ask, could this actually be true? Does this make sense of the 2,000 years of prophecies and promises we have from God about his work of salvation and restoration? What about the sign that he's just done by the pool of Bethesda? They didn't even stop to ask. Driven by their prejudice, they ignore the evidence and they just want to put him away. So the challenge comes to us this morning, doesn't it? Who do you think Jesus is? Do you recognize Jesus as God in your life? Jesus goes on into quite a a dense explanation and an unpacking of what this means. And perhaps if you've got questions, it'd be great to come along on Wednesday night or come and chat to one of us afterwards and we can look at this in more detail. But he makes no attempt to change their interpretation of his claim. But rather he, he clarifies and unpacks what it means for him to be the son of God. And I just want to summarize it with two, two points from verse 19 to 20. He says, firstly, he offers true revelation. He offers true revelation because of his divine works and divine knowledge. And secondly, he offers true life. He offers true life due to his divine prerogative and divine authority. Firstly, he says he offers true revelation because of his divine works and knowledge. In in verse number 19, in case we confuse Jesus' claim to be the Son of God as him claiming to be a second competing deity, he he clarifies that, that his Father and him are perfectly in sync, not two competing deities. When Jesus works, it is God working, Because in verse 19 he says, he can only do what he sees the Father doing. But but furthermore, he has complete divine knowledge. He goes on, that the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. He is dependent on the Father's revelation to him. But that revelation is complete. It is unlimited. It is completely undistorted. And we get this snapshot into what we call in Christian doctrine, the Trinity, the Father and the Son, two rules, one being, two wills, but one purpose, two persons, one life. And what Jesus describes here is a relationship of extraordinary intimacy and knowledge and and, and unity. And what it means for us is that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh who perfectly reveals God to us. He offers true revelation. As Paul will later put it in his letters, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Just like a a true mirror reflects the exact image that stands in front of it, Jesus is the perfect reflection of the character and person of God. 
to us. And everything that God is, Jesus reflects to us in his words and his deeds. So when we see Jesus stoop down to that man and reverse the effects of sin and the fall in this world, we see God at work. And if we want to know the one true God, it is essential that we listen to the words of Jesus and consider what he does to get to know God. Firstly, he offers true revelation. Secondly, he offers true life due to his divine prerogative and divine authority. Jesus, in the rest of the passage we have, emphasizes the two unique divine responsibilities he has from God, the prerogative to give life and the authority for final judgment. For just as the Father raises the dead, he gives and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. He states it another way in verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. I know that's quite tricky to get your head around, but we don't have life in ourselves. We don't choose to create ourselves. Our life is a gift that is given by God's prerogative. He is the source of life and of energy and of power. We're dependent. We're a bit like a light bulb. If we're not connected to the mains, then we're just lifeless matter. But not Jesus. He is the mains. He's saying, I am the source of life. I have at my discretion the power to give life. And you start to see now why it is that Jesus heals this man at the pool on the Sabbath day. Jesus has given us an illustration. He's given us evidence that he is the son of life who can give, the son of God who can give life. That man, hopeless, helpless, obsessed with getting into the pool. It's as if Jesus says to him, forget about the pool. I have life in myself and I am here to give it to you. Just get up and walk. And so Jesus is demonstrating in this encounter that he himself is the very source of life. He doesn't need a pool. Just by his command, life is restored into that man's legs, the fibers, the muscle, whatever biology he needed, it was instantly available to him to walk. Evidence of who Jesus is and substantiating what he can do. And so he turns to us in verse 24, and this is the, the key of what he says, the key verse in the center of what he says. He says, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. He has demonstrated that he is fully divine, and now he offers us true life. Whoever responds to him, taking his words seriously and genuinely trusting in him can enjoy the promise of eternal life now and the assurance of no condemnation or judgment to come. But of course, if we don't take the Son of God seriously, then we remain, he says, in the sphere of death and we leave ourselves exposed to future judgment. 
let me conclude. Often with famous thinkers, it's their ideas that are controversial. Maybe Marx's economic theories or Hume's ethics. But when it comes to Jesus, there's really very little controversy around his teaching. Often his teaching is considered highly valuable, inspirational. But there is huge controversy. This is the real controversy around who he actually is. If he were merely a philosopher or a a spiritual leader, then Jesus and his teaching, I think, would be widely accepted, but he doesn't give us that option. We can see in this encounter that he has clearly demonstrated his claim to be fully divine, and he claims to offer the only true revelation of God and true life, and that's where the decision comes for each one of us. In fact, These claims leave it impossible for us to conclude that Jesus was a great spiritual teacher. C.S. Lewis famously makes the logical point in his little book, Mere Christianity, that when we're faced with this claim that Jesus makes to be the Son of God, we have only three conclusions. Either he was a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he is the Lord. Let me read you the quote from Mere Christianity as we finish. C.S. Lewis says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, a liar. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up For a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. So to those who want to be made well, Jesus demonstrates to us this morning that he is fully divine. He offers true revelation, and he offers true life. How we respond is a life or death issue. Perhaps we join with Lewis and prove the strength of Jesus' promise that he wasn't a liar or he wasn't a lunatic, but he is the Lord, and in him, is true life. Let's pause and then we'll close in prayer and then I'll hand back over Dolly. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your work of salvation. We thank you that you did not leave us in a lost paradise, a destroyed paradise, but you have worked tirelessly down through the generations, a plan of salvation where new and true life can be enjoyed by your creatures in right relationship with you. 
We thank you for how clear Jesus makes it in these encounters we've been considering in John's gospel, who he is and what he can do. Our prayer this morning is that we will honor him rightly. We will recognize him for who he is. And in doing so, we will enjoy the truth of his promise of eternal life. So we commit your word and the work of your spirit to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.